0: Well, a few weeks ago, um, Lily and I had the privilege of standing in line in a school hall very like this one to receive the GCSE results of a friend of ours. We weren't resitting sitting again for after 15 or so years, um, but we were asked to collect them for someone. And it had been a while since we'd been in that sort of situation, but the level of nervous energy in that room was, was sort of breathtaking. Getting exam results at school, it's, it's a nerve-wracking Experience a nerve-shredding experience even. Have I done enough to get the grades I need? Will I be happy with my results? And perhaps equally important, will my parents be happy with my results? Will my friends be impressed with how I've done? Have the examiners been kind to me? Or have they rejected me? Have I passed or have I failed? Just standing in that queue, just it brought me out a bit of a cold sweat. And I just thought, those are the questions I remembered feeling, and I really felt for the people around me waiting for their results. Just, just put your mind at ease. The person I was collecting results for did very well, so, so that's all right then. But it got me to thinking about the role of the examiner and the power of the examiner on a day like that. On a day like GCSE Results Day, it can feel as if the whole future course of your life is in the hands of this invisible faceless examiner you've never met and he's the one or she who decides whether to pass or fail you whether you get to go to the college of your dreams, do the job of your dreams or not and the the fear you have at that moment is that well if I got them on a good day I'll be alright if I got them on a day where they were feeling generous to me where they thought, yeah bad handwriting but I'll let that go then you'll be okay but what you don't want is to be the final paper at the end of a long day when your examiner is tired and fed up of essays on photosynthesis or whether or not Hamlet fancies his mum. See, you get the examiner on a bad day and you fear, that's it. You're sunk. It is a frightening feeling putting your hands, putting your life sorry, into the hands of this shadowy figure who examines you. I want to suggest that for many people in the world today, it's that vision of the examiner, shadowy, unknown, very possibly unfair or harsh, that puts them off the idea of the God who Christians believe in. Because even people with very little knowledge of the Bible will have some understanding that Christians believe that God will judge us on the basis of our lives. It's a conception of God that's shared by many more religions, Judaism, Islam, and an awful lot of people find that vision of God terrifying. Some just are scared by the idea of this good God judging them. Others object to the idea. How dare God judge me? What gives Him the right to do that? And how do I know he's going to be fair in his judgments? Surely I might just catch him on a bad day. And then, then I'm lost. How could I want to know a God like that? How could I praise God? and trust a God like that. I think we can go a little further with that vision of God as the examiner because I fear that all too often even Christians fall into the trap of seeing God in those terms. All too often, if you look at our day-to-day lives, Christians just think of God as someone who is watching them and who we need to work hard to impress. Why do we go to the prayer meeting? We go there because God wants us to. God tells us to. If we don't, he'll be angry. Why do we serve in our local church? Well, because God wants us to. If we don't, he'll be angry. He'll mark us down. Why do we read our Bibles? Why do we pray? Because God is our examiner. And if we don't do those things, he's going to fail us. See, so often in practice, we obey God to earn his approval. Just as back at school we knew that we had to play by the rules to get on the right side of the teachers. And I want us to see this morning that it's that vision of God as the examiner that Paul sets out to explode in this passage in Philippians. See, Paul knows all about the tendency of human beings like us and like him to think of God as supremely a judge whose approval we must earn through our hard work and spiritual discipline. And we're going to see that Paul, in his own life, could have basically written the book on living a life of discipline, self-control, and hard work in the service of God. Paul took religion to an art form. He tells us that in verses 4 to 6. But instead of writing the book on religion, Paul's letters in the New Testament contributed to write the book on God's grace. Instead of the God who is an examiner, who may be harsh, who may be unfair, Paul wants to see that the living God is a God who sets us free from that desperate attempt to earn his love and his approval. A God who delights to show foolish, weak people like us mercy. And he calls us into a personal relationship with himself through the sacrifice of his son Jesus. See, Paul wrote these words to the community of Christians at Philippi because he was absolutely convinced that the only way a church can have a healthy and joyful and loving life together is if we get our vision of God right. It's essential that we see God for who he really is. Not who we might fear he is, not who we might at our worst moments suspect he is, but who he really is as he has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Because only then, with that clear vision of our God of grace, will we be equipped and empowered to live for him, to love one another, and to make him known. See, Paul sets two alternatives before us in this passage. Do you want to relate to God on the basis of religion? Or do you want to relate to God on the basis of grace? And Paul urges us, To get grace right. To understand it, even when we struggle to. To grasp onto it. Because if we understand grace, then we understand God. So I want to ask us the question this morning that Paul is basically asking the Philippian Christians, how can I know that God accepts me as his child this morning? See, if you're not a Christian here this morning, that's a huge question for you. And I hope Paul's message of the Philippians will speak to you this morning. And even if you are a Christian, that doesn't let you off the hook. Because again, as we've already seen, our own lives often are lived basically to earn God's approval. Think about the motivation behind your life and compare it with what Paul says about Jesus here. Think about the things you do, the things you don't do, the way you think about God when you're on your own. Who is this God you trust in? Is he the God that Paul is talking about here? So let's look at this passage now. mean, this section, in Philippians chapter 3 comes midway in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And Paul's beginning to sum up his letter to these Christians. And in verse 1, he has important advice to give them. Just read verse one for us. Finally, my brothers, he writes, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. See, apparently that command, rejoice in the Lord, is something the Philippian Christians heard Paul say a lot. When he spent time with him, he was forever using that refrain. Rejoice in the Lord. Remember to rejoice in the Lord. Are you rejoicing in the Lord? But Paul made no apologies for repeating himself. See, what Paul is calling them to here is a proactive commitment to think of who their Lord is and to find their joy in him. See, Paul isn't concerned here primarily with whether or not the Philippian Christians feel like rejoicing in the Lord at any given moment. Actually, he just tells them to do it Rejoice in the Lord every single day, he urges them. Rejoice in who your Lord is, Jesus Christ, the gracious Son of God. And rejoice in who you are because of him and because of what he has done for you. See, Paul's saying rejoicing in the Lord isn't something optional. It's not something just for positive people or for people having a good day. See, Paul is urging that group of Christians in Philippi that they need to actively remember to thank Jesus for who He is every day. Otherwise, they're going to be open to losing grasp of who He is. See, joy in the Lord, Paul tells them, is something they need to fight for. So, I have a question for us as we hear these words to the Philippians How seriously do you take joy? It's kind of a strange way of putting it, but I think that's what Paul's saying here. How seriously do you take rejoicing in Jesus? Because Paul tells us here, that is important and it is vital to our spiritual health. See, too often we imagine that truly mature Christians are the most somber and serious people. When I was growing up, I thought a really godly person was the one who never cracked a smile In church, while I would just fidget and and mutter in my pew. Those are the really godly people. But Paul says something very different. He says the sign of godliness is that we rejoice in Jesus. We rejoice in who he is and what he's done. Because when we're doing that, we're actually protecting our hearts. If we're rejoicing in the Lord, Paul says, it is a safeguard. For you, he writes at the end of verse one. Rejoicing in the Lord will protect you from the drift to religion. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, you need a safeguard, you need protecting from your own heart. And the threat you need protecting from is the threat of religion. I need to take a moment to define what I mean by religion here, because obviously people define it in many different ways. What I'm saying is that when Paul mentions the alternative to grace, he is talking about religion, and by that I mean he wants to protect us from the mindset that when we see all around us in the world that God will only accept us and others will only accept us on the basis of what we do. Religion says, I obey Therefore, I am accepted. I do certain things. Therefore, God loves me. And every single one of our hearts will begin to believe that if we don't actively remind ourselves of the gospel of grace and of the Lord of grace, Jesus Christ. See, religion is the default setting of the human heart. In everything in our lives, in in our work, in our relationships, in our pastimes, we instinctively believe that we will only get out what we put in. And of course, that's partly true. We do need to work at our careers, our friendships. We do need to take responsibility for many of the things in our lives. But Paul knows here that the real problem arises when we begin to believe that we can earn God's acceptance by the things that we do. We begin to believe that the only reason God will accept me is because I have done what he wants. So God will be with me today because I read my Bible this morning. But I'll have a bad day tomorrow because I won't have time to read the Bible. And we believe that the only reason God accepts us is because we work hard to obey him. Now in Paul's own context, the context of the Philippian Christians, the big issue then was the issue of circumcision. And in verse 2, Paul's tone changes abruptly from one of warmth and affection through most of this letter to one of violence and aggression. Just read verse 2 for us. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. See, three times he is telling the Philippians, watch out and the terms he uses to describe the people there to watch out for are deliberately offensive terms. Those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. You see, Paul's talking about Jewish teachers here who were telling the Philippians that the only way they could be accepted by God was to be circumcised. They were perhaps even professing Christians, but they said, having faith in Jesus is only good for so much. Then you've got to get circumcised, and then God will accept you. And you see that Paul is just having none of it. Verse 2 again, he is just so offensive in his terminology here. He calls these Jewish teachers dogs, the worst phrase they use for Gentiles. He said instead of circumcising, they're actually mutilating the flesh. He wants nothing to do with these people. And he uses that harsh language, because Paul knows... Personally, the damage those Jewish teachers were doing in Philippi. Because they are teaching the Philippians religion. They're telling them, you need to earn God's approval. You need to live up to God's commands. But Paul knew in his own life that that wasn't true. See, when we look at verses 4 to 6, Paul makes it clear that he knows what he's talking about here. He knows the enemy the Philippian Christians have because he once was the enemy. Just read verses 4 to 6. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. See, Paul's credentials and Paul's accomplishments as a devout Jewish worshipper of God were impeccable. See, it's not that Paul is looking down on these Jewish teachers here. It's not that he's saying, well, I could never live up to that, so, so ignore them. And it's not that he's berating the Philippian Christians for being stupid for listening to these teachers. No, Paul is being honest Here, for a large part of his life, he was not only attracted to religion, he excelled at it. His religious and ethnic credentials were faultless. Verse 5, he says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Hebrew, my parents were Hebrews. His achievements in religion were remarkable. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee, he says. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. See, if you want to know how to succeed in religion, in the value of hard work and commitment in reaching your goal, then Paul would have been the man to talk to. Paul was faultless in his observance of the Jewish law. And that was an amazing achievement for anyone to have. See, Paul knew all about the appeal and the attraction of religion to the human heart. He knew that inside every one of us, lives the belief that we can be good enough in and of ourselves to gain the approval and respect of God. Maybe just on a very good day, maybe just with the wind on our back going downhill, but we still believe it somehow. I can be good enough. Paul had been down that road and he had excelled at it. But then we turn to verse 7 and we see that Paul totally rejects religion as a way of relating to God. And he urged the Philippians to do the same. You see, you might expect Paul to look back at his former religious days with some fondness. At least to feel some pride at what he had achieved through hard work and study. Again, we just have to look at it and say, these are amazing achievements Paul made. But No. See, Paul pulls no punches in telling the Philippians that the years he spent trying to earn God's approval and to impress God were completely wasted. Verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain christ see paul has discovered that knowing christ sets us free from religion and that that is our only hope it's not that some people will have faith in jesus and other people will work hard at religion and they'll both be equally safe no religion paul knows is dangerous And he's urging us to watch out for it. So, why is religion so dangerous in Paul's mind? I think there are two reasons supremely in this passage. The first is because it robs Jesus of his glory. See, look again at verses seven to eight. See, what is it that freed Paul from his former way of life? What is it that led him to reject religion? Completely, He had devoted his whole life to living this way. What changed him? Well, the answer is meeting Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus, on the road to Damascus. Because on that day, Paul discovered that God was far bigger and far holier than he had ever imagined. See, Paul knows that up to that point, with his religious mindset he had actually shrunk God down to someone who could be impressed by him. God became a glorified, maybe bigger version of us. Just as an examiner can be impressed by our hard work, he guessed, well, surely God is the same. So for all this talk of holiness, for all this talk of purity, he actually was believing that God wasn't that bothered by his impurity. That he could somehow pull himself up and impress God. See, Paul's problem, he realised, when he met Jesus, was that he had not grasped just how holy and how good and how perfect God really is. See, no sinful human being can ever do enough to earn God's love. But Paul had lived as if he, as if he could. But Jesus opened his eyes to the truth. God was just too Holy. Paul couldn't earn his keep with God. Paul was lost, a condemned sinner before God, in spite of his legalistic righteousness, in spite of his ethnicity, in spite of everything he had devoted his life to. He stood condemned before God. But that was when Paul discovered the glory of Jesus Christ. Because just as Jesus made it clear to Paul that all his other efforts had been meaningless, they had no impact on God's holiness. Just as he thought, I'm lost here. All the things I've lived for, have just, they're rubbish. They have achieved nothing. Jesus revealed himself to be the crucified and risen Lord who had died to lavish his grace and his mercy on sinners like Paul. On sinners like us. So you often wonder where we see Jesus' glory most supremely. We can read through the Gospels and see great miracles Jesus did, great demonstrations of power, great teaching. But for Paul, the most glorious truth about Jesus Christ was that he was a God of grace, that he would forgive sinners, and that he would become, as Paul calls him in verse 8, my Lord. My Lord. Not just the Lord, that Lord out there somewhere who created the world but who I'm vaguely afraid of, but my Lord, the one who has forgiven me, who has shown his grace to me, who enables me to live for him. See, only Jesus can make anyone righteous. And if Jesus was not a God of grace, that would lead us to ultimate despair. But as Jesus showed Paul just how feeble his efforts were to impress God, Jesus also showed his hands, his feet, the marks of the punishment Jesus had taken for Paul, for us. Jesus went to the cross and gave us his righteousness. So for Paul to go back to religion, to believe that circumcision actually would impress God, to try and impress him by our own efforts, that was just wrong. That was to rob Jesus of his glory. That was to be a dog, an evil person, a mutilator of the flesh. Because Jesus' glory is in his mercy and in his grace and in his bearing with foolish people like Paul and like us. See, the only reason anyone can be made righteous is if Jesus Christ makes them righteous. I asked the question earlier, how can I know that I'm accepted by God this morning? How can I know that for a fact? Well, the only reason you can know that the only reason you know you're accepted by God is to look to Jesus and to his righteousness. And Jesus' glory and surpassing greatness is in the love he delights to show sinners like us. He didn't have to. Jesus doesn't have to love us as we sometimes think he does. But he chose to. And that is why Paul calls us to rejoice In Jesus, because of all he has done for us. All that we could not do for ourselves. See, our acceptance as God's children rests with Christ and with Christ alone. And Paul says, do not ever believe that you can do it on your own. You needed Jesus to die for you. That is why God sent him. Hold on to that. I think the second reason why religion is so damaging is it's damaging to us as people as well. Not just our thinking about our relationship to God, but also our relationship to one another. See, religion leads to two extremes that can prove fatal to a believer. To pride or to despair. And Paul knew both in his own life. See, when I am doing well, when I feel as if I'm living up to God's standards, and equally importantly to the standards of the Christians around me, then I become pride. I look down on the people around me who struggling. So, someone tells me, Well, I really struggle to read my Bible. I go, Well, I don't find that a problem. Why do they? I become pride. I lack compassion on people who have made a mess of their lives. I'm not keen to welcome broken people into the church, because I believe, well, well, if I can live this way, surely everyone can. See, religion leads to pride, and pride is foolishness. But then, there are the times when I'm not doing so well, when God's standards feel impossibly high, and I am painfully aware of the sin in my life, and then the tendency of the religious person is towards despair. I realize I will never be good enough for God, or even for the people around me. And because all I have is my efforts, then I feel completely powerless to ever change and improve my performance. I am terrified of God. I am terrified of the Christians around me. I am in despair. Paul knew both those feelings. Here he talks about the things he boasted of before knowing Jesus, he talks about his pride. Elsewhere in Romans 7, he talks about the despair he felt when he knew sin was there in his heart. He couldn't shift it. He couldn't get rid of it. Paul knows that the consequences of religion in someone's life are disastrous. But Paul also knows that Jesus has set us free from that cycle of pride and despair. If only we will grasp hold of him. If only we will see that we are children of grace. We are accepted on the basis of of God's grace not on what we do and that's important to get right maybe particularly at this sort of time of year and we're coming to the end of the summer A new terms about to begin with new challenges, new opportunities and for myself I'm just aware that this is always going to be a busy term for many of us in the autumn school begins again for families and for children. Work, again, the build-up to Christmas is often busy. And in the life of the church, well, it's that time of year for rotas to start up again. Many of you may have received dreaded emails from me for various rotas in the life of the church, for set-up teams, for junior church, for music groups, for preachers, for youth groups. And I have to confess, sometimes my heart sinks at this time of year. I love the summer. I love the slower pace of things. And I think, well, the ultimate isn't it just so works oriented, aren't we? Just doing things to, to keep God happy or to keep one another happy. See, how are we gonna face those challenges? See, if we accept areas of service in the church, if we accept the challenge of God to live for Him in our workplace, in our family, and then we try to do it in our own, then we are just gonna face disaster. We will either be proud. Or, I, can, I suspect for most of us, we will be despairing. See, we all struggle with that drift, but Paul tells us look at Jesus, rejoice in the Lord, know that Jesus is the one who makes us righteous, and then serve off the back of his righteousness. Don't get the cart before the horse, Paul is saying. We do not obey, therefore, we are accepted. We are accepted by God on the basis of Jesus, therefore, we obey. Grace comes first. God comes first. Jesus' sacrifice is the one thing that qualifies us to call God Father. Not what we do in the life of the church. And Paul is desperate that we get that right this morning. See, this term, as we think about the challenges and the opportunities facing each one of us, Paul's telling us we need to look to our God we need to look to Jesus to open our eyes to him and to thank him for his grace every day spend some time refreshing your memory of the gospel of grace because otherwise you will lose it otherwise you will think it's about me we need to actively remind ourselves it is by grace we are saved and it is by grace God's grace that we live for him Remember who your God is this term. And then you'll begin to see that knowing him and being known by him are the most precious gifts we can ever enjoy. See, in verse 8, Paul speaks of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In part, he's talking about the freedom From religion he now enjoys with Jesus. He no longer has to strive to impress God. He knows that God has forgiven him. He is secure in Christ. But he's also thinking about the present experience of knowing Jesus' presence with him and the future growth he can look forward to as a believer. See, for Paul, knowing Jesus gives us meaning, gives us joy and a future for us. Verses 10 to 11. Paul has already said he knows Jesus, but here in verse 10 he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul already knows Christ, but he is confident that there are vast riches that he still has to tap into. See, in one sense, Paul's telling us, remain rooted in the basics of the gospel. Stay close to the basics of what Jesus has done for you at the cross. But on another level, he's saying, there is so much more for us to learn. If we are rooted in God's grace, if we are rooted in the cross of Jesus, we will discover depths of his grace that we have not grasped yet. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, Perhaps you already know that Jesus is gracious. But at the beginning of this term, you can pray along with Paul that you will discover in new and unexpected ways just how gracious Jesus is. So maybe you already know that God has declared you righteous in Christ. But you can pray today with Paul that the preciousness of that gift of righteousness will make you even more thankful to Jesus for what he has done You see, Paul in verse 10 wants to know Christ. He says, I already know him, but there is so much more to learn, so much more to treasure and to worship in Jesus. And he prays for that deeper knowledge of his Lord. So, in this passage, Paul knows that we are proud people, instinctively. He knows that we are forgetful people. He knows that we all need God's grace even to remind us of God's grace. That's how lost we are without him. But Paul's desire to know Christ can become our desire this morning and our prayer for this coming term. So you all have a long way to go in this. Even as I've been working on this sermon, I'm aware so much of my Christian life, my idea of myself is rooted in what I do, in the gifts God's given me. So I think, well, surely this is how I'm impressing God. But no, Paul says he wants to know Christ. Because everything else is rubbish compared to him. And that can be our prayer this morning. That we might know in the face of struggles and joys, in the face of frustrations and encouragements, that religion, that way just is death. But grace, but God's grace in Jesus Christ is life and hope and joy and a future. And then we can echo Paul's words in verse 12 following. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus has taken hold of us. All we need to do is take hold of him in response. And then a word of encouragement. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. May that be our prayer this term.